The shift to sustainable energy means we need power grid innovation and the people to lead this change. To read more about why Hitachi ABB Power Grids needs top talent, head to wired.uk forward slash Hitachi Energy. Coming up today, what Uber's loss in the Supreme Court means for the gig economy, why Facebook was right to ban news in Australia, and we go inside the UK's controversial COVID-19 challenge trial. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when Uber lost a landmark case in the UK Supreme Court that could have profound implications for the entire gig economy. The court ruled that 25 Uber drivers are, in fact, workers and are entitled to minimum wage and holiday pay. More on that later. The head of the Robinhood trading platform has apologised at a US congressional hearing this week, prompted by last month's GameStop trading frenzy. Vlad Tenev said the situation his company faced last month, when financial strains led it to limit certain stock purchases, was unacceptable and is making sure it won't happen again. This was also the week when NASA successfully landed its Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars after a seven-month journey and a nerve-wracking final descent. The six-wheeled rover will spend the next two years looking for signs of past life on the Red Planet. And finally, this was the week when the UK passed the 15 million mark for people who have received their first dose of a COVID vaccination. That's 10 weeks after the first vaccination was given. It's an absolutely huge milestone. Um, I had a personal milestone this week uh, when I realised just how close we're getting to being in some form of lockdown for almost a year when hot cross buns appeared in the house again. It's funny how tiny things can can really take on great significance in our current life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hot cross buns pushed me over the edge. I had sort of a very existential moment staring at these delicious little buns thinking, I remember you from last March and here we are again. Did you eat them all? Yes. (laughs) Uh, What did we learn this week other than the deliciousness of hot cross buns? Amit, let's start with you. Uh, I learned that if you donate a kidney, your other kidney will get bigger to compensate. Uh, Also related fact is that when they do a kidney transplant, they usually don't take the malfunctioning kidney out. So a lot of people are walking around with three kidneys and some people are walking around with one very big kidney. So what do they do with the malfunction? They just disconnect it? Yeah, I think they just leave it in there. There's no point taking it out, like, because it will just leave a gap, which doesn't really work from a sort of biology perspective. So I think they just leave it in there because there's no point taking it out, basically. Good times. Natasha, what did you learn? Anything kidney related? No, I learned something a bit disturbing this week, uh, which is there is a type of parasitic crustacean that enters a fish's head via its gill and bites off its tongue and then attaches itself to the nub and becomes the fish's tongue. So it's like this horrible little louse-like creature, which is called a, see if I get this right, Shimothoa exigua, whatever. <laughs> this is not going to go well. But um, if you look it up, it's, it's really horrible looking. It looks kind of like, a, I don't know, like a tick, but it's long and fat. And scientists say there are about 280 types of them, but they don't know for sure. Um, they appear only in fish, though, so don't worry, it's not like, suddenly a louse is going to try and get into your mouth and replace your your tongue by biting it off so good always a concern (laughs) (laughs) vicky how about you what did you learn this week i learned that it would take around five trillion dollars every year to brute force climate change by paying to have carbon dioxide directly filtered from the air so there are actually companies that claim to be able to do this um, but it is expensive it costs around six hundred dollars a ton so at least for the time being, it doesn't really seem like an option. Where did I learn this exciting nugget, I hear you ask? Well, (laughs) it was from an extensive interview that we have in the new issue of Wired UK, which is out on all good newsstands right now, uh, featuring Bill Gates. Um, He is turning his attention to climate change. He just released a book which is all about the technologies and advances we need to reach net zero carbon by 2050. 
it's uh, it's a really great issue of the magazine wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe to pick up your copy and support what we do here at wired um i learnt this week I, I can't use it to plug the magazine but it's it's a nice fact nonetheless um i learned that some residents of the island of Logomera in the Canaries don't speak, well, they don't just speak Spanish. They whistle it. So Silbo Gomero, also known as El Silbo, or the whistle, is a whistled version of Spanish, which is used to communicate across the island's deep ravines and narrow valleys. So people can have a conversation over several kilometres and still understand each other just by whistling. Yes, Natasha. I went to a school in Madrid um, and that was part of the curriculum. So like you didn't learn to to whistle, but it was like a fact that we were all taught. And apparently you you can stand from one mountain onto another mountain and sort of whistle and you can tell who's speaking by their whistle. So it's not just the language. It's almost like a a voice pattern. So you can tell who's whistling. It's quite cool, isn't it? So you just go. I can't whistle. They they also. (laughs) Well, they. They teach it in school, so um, I, and it's compulsory. So I'd imagine if if you lived in in this on this island in the Canaries, you would learn to whistle. Otherwise, you'd be at a distinct disadvantage, all on your own on top of a mountain, unable to make yourself heard. Yeah, that would be the problem. I, I can never move there. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> do not do not move to La Gomera. Uh, Our first story this week isn't about a whistled version of Spanish, Natasha. It's about Uber and the end, sort of, of a very, very long-running legal challenge against it. Yeah, that's right. So Uber has lost a landmark case in the Supreme Court and must now classify its drivers on its platform as workers for the first time. This ruling entitles Uber drivers to minimum wage and holiday pay, protections that they were unable to access while Uber classified them as self-employed. It's been going on since 2016 and, in fact, dates back even further than that. The the event that kicked this all off was in 2015. So the judgment was handed down this morning. We're recording on Friday afternoon um, from the Supreme Court. Pretty much agreed with everything that's been said over the last five years, right? Yeah, that's right. So we saw Lord Leggett this morning on video link delivering a judgment that basically dismissed Uber's appeal entirely. He said that drivers are in a position of subordination and dependency to Uber and agreed with the original ruling from the Employment Tribunal. This really comes down to the efforts of a a small group of drivers who have kind of forced this all the way through the courts. Um, This particular case focused on the two men who brought forward the original claim, Uber drivers Yassim Aslam and James Farah. But how did they respond to the outcome of the case? Yeah, so they're really quick. In the, in the few minutes after the judgment was handed down, both men said they were overjoyed and relieved at the outcome of the case. James Farrow was particularly vocal and said that this ruling will fundamentally reorder the gig economy and bring an end to rife exploitation of workers by means of algorithmic and contract trickery. He said that Uber drivers are cruelly sold a full stream of endless flexibility and entrepreneurial freedom and the reality has been illegally low pay, dangerously long hours and intense digital surveillance. He called for the government to urgently strengthen the law so that gig workers may also have access to sick pay and protection from unfair dismissal. So obviously a really big ruling, uh, but this doesn't necessarily mean that Uber drivers will start being able to claim minimum wage and benefits right from today, does it? No, it doesn't. So this new decision will only directly apply to the 25 drivers who brought the claim, the original claim against Uber. But it will set an important precedent for how millions of gig economy workers are treated in the UK. There are around a thousand claims that were waiting in the wings for this judgment to be handed down. And now they can finally be taken to court. The original 25 people who brought this claim against Uber will return now to the original employment tribunal to determine what kind of compensation they could get. And Uber will also make the argument that this was a ruling handed down about what Uber the app was like in 2016 and not what Uber the app is like in 2021. So it's not just a ruling in favour of 25 drivers against Uber. It's also a ruling against a version of Uber that Uber argues no longer exists. So Uber, one would imagine, has, despite being handed a fairly stern telling off by the highest court in the UK, is, is coming out fighting. Yeah, that's right. So this morning it gave a statement basically saying that the company is committed to doing more and will now consult with drivers in the UK. And and you're absolutely right, James. That's exactly what they said. We had the UK and Northern Ireland manager for Uber, Jamie Haywards, who said that the company respects the court's decision, which focused on a very small number of drivers who use the app 
in 2016. He said that since then, the company has made some significant changes to the business, guided by drivers every step of the way, basically saying that the the um, decisions that were um, influencing the courts in this case um, are based on things that no longer exist within the app. Um, he said that the things that they've done to change things include giving more control over how drivers earn money and provide new protections like free insurance in the case of sickness or injury. Of course, we have a fairly robust set of legislation that determines what a fair amount of, of money to be paid is for uh, employees, and we call it the minimum wage. And Uber, Uber's strategy in every market has entered has been to sort of move fast, break things, basically ignore uh, t- to a large degree kind of local legislation and see if we can get away with it for as long as it can. And it's obviously fought this so hard for so long for a reason, and it's because it's going to cost it a lot of money. I mean, does Uber's business model work if they have to pay their drivers a minimum wage and, and give them all the benefits that, that workers get rather than gig economy workers? It's really difficult to tell because obviously the, the, the game has changed. The, the, the judgment today means that people who log on to the app um, would be, you know, basically are saying they're, they're going to work for Uber and therefore are required to be paid the minimum wage. If they're logged off the app, then Uber is not contractually obliged to give them any money. So it, it's entering into a dynamic that, that goes completely against what Uber has been building its empire up um, on the basis of. So this, this gig economy company has around 60,000 drivers in the UK now. If all of these drivers were to require minimum wage and potentially back paying compensation for not being paid the minimum wage beforehand, this would severely impact Uber's bottom line. Prior to its IPO, the company said that it expected drivers to shoulder the burden as it worked to improve its financial results to reach profitability and cut its operational losses, which at the time stood at $3 billion. Basically, it said that the only way it could do that is by reducing driver incentives and expected driver dissatisfaction to increase as a result. It said that if... If drivers were classified as employees instead of independent contractors, it would impact their business. So what this means for the for Uber's economics, really, in its bottom line, whether it can afford to continue operating in the UK or how much it would have to increase prices for customers is, is still unclear. But there will be an impact if it's the thousands of cases that are waiting in the wings come forward through the courts and are accepted. And it suddenly becomes not just 25 drivers who are set as being workers, but thousands and thousands of them in the UK. And the interesting thing about this case is that it's probably not just going to affect the deep pockets of Uber, right? It's presumably going to affect any other gig economy company too, and and really impact what we understand as the gig economy. Yeah, that's right. So if you look at the the figures at the moment, which are quite dated, TC figures from 2019 are the latest ones that we have. that say around 5 million people in the UK are working in the gig economy. Now we know in in this pandemic that a lot of, um, you know, job losses have resulted in people turning to the gig economy for work. So the figure is likely to have ballooned um, in the last year or so. There are other companies that operate in a very similar way to Uber, such as Ola, Addison Lee or Deliveroo, where people are hired on a job by job basis and paid um, as a result of sort of a set standard that an app puts in, which is exactly the same scenario as what Uber has at the moment. Now, while this judgment doesn't automatically mean that everyone in the gig economy can suddenly turn around and say, I'm a worker, it does open the door for them to do exactly the same as thousands of other Uber Uber drivers can do now, which is to bring similar legal challenges and provides a precedent for these challenges to basically use as a prop to, to change the way that they're working in the future. This isn't an isolated case either. You know, it's not just something that's happening in the UK. We've seen similar legislation being brought in California and there's regulation potentially coming from Europe. Um, the European Commission has got a white paper due out this month uh, and it, it too could kind of put legislation in place to dramatically change the rights of gig economy workers. So what do we think is going to happen next? Yeah, so obviously Uber managed to defend um, its its sort of territory in California when Proposition 22 was passed earlier this year. Uh, that basically allowed it and other gig economy companies to avoid paying minimum wage. And basically these exact same conditions that have been argued in this case and have been successfully argued in this case this morning. Um, until now, though, company, countries have been basically grappling with regulation of the gig economy alone. And there's not been a unified approach of how to classify gig economy workers and to determine 
and what benefits they should be entitled to. Now, this this month, uh, the European Commission is set to uh, bring out a white paper that kind of lays out whether there should be fundamental changes to the way gig economy workers are classified and the benefits they should be entitled to. Courts in Spain, Italy, Netherlands, France and Belgium have so so far ruled independently in favour of reclassifying gig workers. But this could be a game changer because it would basically provide that first sort of unified approach to how gig economy workers should be given compensation. Now, Uber has has lobbied, obviously, successfully in the US uh, with Proposition 22, and now it's released a white paper of its own to lobby EU policymakers in the same way. Basically, it's asking for a new standard of work. Inside this white paper, Uber's offered suggestions such as establishing a portable benefits fund, which would allow drivers to accumulate funds from different companies to access protections and benefits that they want. The argument there is um, one of the biggest attractions of uh, working for gig economy companies is that you can work for as many of them and as frequently or as as sparsely as you want and this would provide those basic fundamental rights without it being landed on the doorstep of of someone like uber so a really interesting scenario is going to be playing out in the coming months on that front but um but yeah big news today Self-regulation is rarely or never really good regulation. The amount of money that gig economy companies ploughed into getting Proposition 22 over the line in California was extraordinary. And the amount of effort that Uber put into arguing this case all the way to the Supreme Court, which was well within its rights, but against the odds. And the Supreme Court ruling was sort of similarly harsh on, well, not harsh, similarly sort of finger-wagging at Uber, as as judges have been throughout this process. Uber's argument didn't stand up to any scrutiny, and it came down to um, the, the British legal system via a Zoom call, um, essentially telling Uber off for running roughshod over employment law. It doesn't have a lot of wiggle room for its business model to survive, surely. Yeah, it just shows how long things take. So we're having an argument today um, that's being laid out by the Supreme Court that is is about an app that no longer exists kind of in the same way that they were talking about it, that the rights are completely changed, the terms have completely changed. They've been through the courts for five years to get this this result for, for 25 workers and to set that precedent that could change everything. But you're right. I mean, when, when it comes to Proposition 22, uh, like gig economy companies spent was it over 200 million dollars to get that passed through to lobby um people to to vote you know in favor of it and it's it's a really interesting scenario when you think about just how long things are taking to change and if you see the the pace of adoption of of people going towards gig economy uh jobs i mean deliveroo hiring thousands of people in the last few months alone uh, it's one of the few employers that that are growing at the moment during a pandemic and a lot of people are being put in the situation where they go well this is the only kind of job that i can get but I don't really get any benefits uh, from from working for this company. So this this could change the game for that. But it's very hard to see exactly how quickly that will happen. That's that's the big problem here. Regulation in the judiciary is slow, and Uber and the wider gig economy have shown themselves to be rather nimble. But maybe the sort of slow cogs of the nation state is catching up with them. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Is this a good ruling from the UK Supreme Court? Is the precedent that it sets a positive thing for innovation? Or should we be forgetting all about the innovation side and Uber's bottom line and focusing more on the rights that people are entitled to, to live comfortably? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week, Vicky, is about the world's first human challenge trial for COVID-19. What's one of those? Yeah, so this week the UK um, gave ethics approval to the world's first human challenge study for COVID-19. And a human challenge study will see young, healthy volunteers deliberately exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19, with the ultimate idea being able to uh, test vaccines and treatments and and collect data on things like transmission um, by, yeah, basically purposefully giving people covid Sounds like an absolutely wild idea when you think we've spent the best part of a year frantically trying to avoid getting COVID by not leaving our houses for sometimes days or weeks on end. I mean, there'll be some people in the UK who have not left their homes for nearly a year now if they're shielding. So what will the trial actually involve and why is it important? 
Yeah, so um, it's funny you say that, actually, because one person I interviewed who's volunteering for this study um, works in a supermarket. And he said that since he put his name down to try and volunteer, he's been desperately trying not to catch COVID, not because he's particularly scared of getting the the virus himself, but because it means he wouldn't be able to take part. Uh, Because if you've already had the virus and you've got antibodies, um, you're not of any use to to the scientific study. Um, But yeah, basically, the idea behind human challenge studies is that they can get you information about the virus much faster than if you're just studying it in the community. Uh, Because you have a lot more control around all the external factors. You know exactly how much and what strain of the virus you're exposing someone to. You know exactly when you're doing that. Uh, You can go and take blood tests and track symptoms 24-7. Um, And so what you can get is a really detailed picture of how the virus uh, develops, any symptoms it might cause, and then how eventually, you know, it goes away. You can also use it to test vaccines. So, you know, you you could give someone a vaccine candidate and then expose them purposely to the virus to see if they're protected. And you could also test treatments. Um, now, we can do all of those things in other ways. Obviously, we, we use clinical trials in lots of different scenarios, and often those don't involve actually exposing someone to the virus. Uh, but it, it can take longer. It can be a little less exact because you don't know if and when and how much of the virus they're going to come into contact with. Um, so it's it's a different type of clinical trial, which obviously has that extra risk and ethical question in that you are actually exposing someone purposely to a virus, which is a little bit counterintuitive when you're trying to do something positive for people's health, right? Now, this first study that's got ethics approval, it's the very first step on this road. It's what's called a characterization study. And what it aims to do is find out how much of the virus to expose volunteers to in order to produce a reliable infection. So what the researchers are trying to do is find the minimum amount, the tiniest amount of a special medical grade of SARS-CoV-2 that they need to put up someone's nose in order for most of their volunteers to then actually get COVID. Because they can't do the studies if the volunteers don't get COVID. That's not much use to them at all but they want to expose them to as little as the virus as possible to minimise risk. So that's what this first study is aiming to do. It's basically how what's the smallest amount of the virus that we need to give people in order for them actually to become infected. And then the idea is that that could inform later studies, uh, which would then be able to do things like test vaccines or, or answer some of these scientific questions that we still have. It's really interesting, the timing of this, obviously, because you could argue that we've all been a bit of a test bed for this virus for almost a year now, right? But but the difference is that now we have a first generation of vaccines and scientists are going to be able to evaluate how they work, right? So so if you think about that, those vaccines, what what could they tell us in this trial? Yeah, it, it is quite interesting because um, I don't know if anyone listening to the podcast remembers, it would probably be about a year ago that we last spoke about human challenge studies and we discussed the ethics of doing this. There's a, an advocacy group called One Day Sooner, which I imagine lots of people will have come across, which has been really pushing globally for people to do these studies. Um, you know, they and the whole reason behind their initiative and their name one day sooner was that they thought doing these studies will get us a vaccine sooner and if it's even just one day sooner that will that could save thousands of lives now a year on and obviously it's taken that long to kind of uh, put this study together and get it through ethics approval the global context of the pandemic has shifted a lot and that really changes how you think of these studies and the the sort of risk benefit scenario that you're looking at. So, um, you know, initially we were looking at these studies primarily as a way to develop the first vaccine. If you think back to a year ago, before we had any vaccines available, that was what everyone was hyper-focused on. When will we have a vaccine for COVID-19? That's the only way out of this pandemic. And before this, I think the fastest we'd ever created a vaccine was what, five years? So it was really looking like a desperate situation and human challenge studies seem to be perhaps one answer to this. Now, a year later, things have changed. 
we've learned a lot more about the disease and about the virus than we knew back then, which in some ways is positive. Uh, we know, for instance, we've got much, much clearer evidence that young, healthy people are much less likely to die from, from COVID than older people. There's still a lot we don't know, though. And now we have multiple vaccines. Uh, you know, we said earlier, 50 million people in the UK already received a first dose. So we, you know, these challenge studies aren't needed to get that first generation of vaccines. We did those without challenge studies. We did those with regular phase three trials, which means, um, you know, giving people the vaccine and then just letting them back into their lives and seeing how many of each group um, actually get COVID or not. So um, that's a bit of a point of contention around these human challenge studies now, because it, it, it raises the question, like, how much do we actually need them if we already have a vaccine? And is it worth putting people at risk? Um, now, there are things that human challenge studies still could be very useful for telling us. The first is like simple scientific questions that we still don't know about COVID. One, one big example about this is transmission. We don't know, for example, uh, if people have the virus but are asymptomatic, can they transmit it? And that's particularly relevant among younger people, which are the, the, the volunteers that will be taking part in challenge studies. Um, you know, and knowing things like that will inform policy. You know, if you know that if you're asymptomatic, then you can't transmit. Maybe it's safe if you don't have symptoms for you to be out in the community. If that's not the case, then it's not safe. Uh, so these these can inform really important policy decisions. There's also lots of questions around transmission and vaccines. We don't know currently if someone's been vaccinated, whether they can still transmit the virus. So they may be protected, but it might not be a good idea for them to go and visit grandma because if there's a chance that they could still transmit the virus. We don't know how long vaccines give protection for. Uh, we don't know if we will need to revaccinate people. Um, and there's lots of other things coming up like new strains of the virus that human challenge studies could help to investigate. They could also help us test second generation vaccines. So um, although we have now several vaccine candidates that have been approved, there's more in the pipeline and some that are specifically trying to address issues like uh, cold chain storage. You know, it would be better if we had a vaccine that didn't need to be keep kept really refrigerated. It would be better if we had a vaccine that didn't need two doses. It would be better if we had a vaccine that was cheaper, that was easier to produce. So there is still plenty of vaccine work going on and we could use them to test treatments. So there's lots of stuff we could still use these studies for. But that initial primary goal of getting the first vaccine, you know, obviously we've kind of um, that's what that's all that's already happened. <laughs> what's it I mean, what's it like for people that have signed up for this thing? Obviously, injecting people with COVID deliberately is such a huge step. And we've seen so many cases of people who, you know, aren't or didn't seem to be in an at-risk group, uh, you know, suffering really badly from it. But, but what's it like for these people that have signed up for these challenge trials? Do they think it's worth it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the volunteers that I spoke to, um, they're very passionate about these studies going ahead. A lot of them uh, kind of work with uh, One Day Sooner. They're very much advocating for these studies and are delighted that the first one has got ethics approval. I mean, it's very restrictive who is able to volunteer for these studies. You have to be between 18 and 30 and you have to be like really healthy. So, um, you know, there's some things that instantly rule you out. Uh, all of the major risk factors that we see associated with severe symptoms of COVID. So obesity, for instance, if you've got any underlying health conditions like diabetes, you're not going to be able to take part. Uh, and you have to go through a really uh, quite thorough health screening. So even if you may have a condition that you didn't know about, um, hopefully that will be detected. So things like um, you have to do a lung capacity test, you have to have blood tests, you have to be checked to make sure that you don't have antibodies already to COVID. Um, because, of course, you could have had it asymptomatically and, and not even know that you've already had the virus. Uh, you even have chest X-rays um, to make sure that you're as fit as possible to be able to take part. If you're then selected, um, then I visited one of the facilities where these kind of challenge studies take place. Um, and basically, you're, you go, you have extra health checks just to check nothing's changed since you were screened before. You're put in a room on your own in quarantine. Um, and for two days, you just have medical checks. Um, and it's basically you're given two days to see 
can I do this? Because if you take part in the full trial, you're going to have to stay in that room for about two weeks on your own. Um, it's, you know, a simple kind of hospital style room with an ensuite bathroom. You've got a TV, a PlayStation, but that's about it. So you need to know that you can mentally prepare for that. <laughs> then you'll be given the virus um, and it's given in your nose. Um, and for many people, you probably won't have symptoms at all or you'll have very low symptoms. Uh, so the main issue is just going to be boredom. <laughs> you, you're kept in that room for uh, about 14 days. And obviously you'll have doctors and nurses and health staff coming in uh, at regular times throughout the day, um, invading your privacy to take nasal swabs, blood tests. Uh, they swab the, the air. They swab the surfaces around you to try and see how things are transmitted. Basically collecting all the information they can about you as the as the virus kind of takes it, its course. Um, and then after after you've done your two weeks... Uh, they check that you're no longer shedding the virus. And if that's the case, you're allowed to go home. You then get multiple follow-ups. Um, and they're being obviously particularly cautious with COVID because there's still a lot we don't know about the virus. Uh, just making sure that everyone's okay for, for up to a year after the study itself. Uh, people are paid for their time. You're paid around, I think, £4,500. That includes all of the, the study and all of the follow-ups. And this is in line with ethics guidance for challenge trials um, which basically say people need to be compensated fairly for their time but not so much that it can become an incentive that people might volunteer to do it when they wouldn't otherwise so all this is uh, is decided by the ethics review which gave approval this week it's really interesting to hear from a couple of people who have signed up and are now well on the way to being deliberately infected with with a virus that has killed millions of people around the world. Um, it's a fascinating story that Vicky worked on this week. We'll include a link in the show notes. And if you are uh, someone that's getting involved in the challenge trials, let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Why are you getting involved and what do you hope um, that, that you can do to help us get out of this pandemic? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. Uh, for our third and final story this week, a, a little bit of navel gazing, uh, if you'll excuse us. Um, over the last few years, there's been a situation developing in Australia between Facebook, Google and the Australian media. It came to a bit of a head this week and people have probably now noticed what's been going on down under Amit. Yeah, it's really broken into the news this week. Um, Facebook users in Australia will have loaded up uh, the social network to find that news stories have largely disappeared from the site. Facebook has blocked the sharing and viewing of news articles and pages in the country. This means that international users can't see news from Australian outlets on Facebook and people in Australia can't see or share or view any news from anywhere. As you say, it's the culmination of this kind of long-running legal battle between the tech giants like Google and Facebook and news, basically Richard, Rupert Murdoch's um, News Corp in Australia and, and other Australian media organisations. And it's not... It's one of those difficult situations where there's not really a clear kind of good guy and bad guy and it's really difficult to know what to root for or what a positive outcome even looks like in this situation. So let's take a step back for a moment. Why has this happened? So... It, it all started back in 2018. I mean, obviously, it started before that, but issues have been rumbling between Facebook and Google and news organisations for a long time. But this all kicked off in earnest in 2018 when the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission launched an inquiry into the impact of social media giants like Google and Facebook on competition in media and advertising. Uh, the regulator concluded that there was an imbalance of power. You know, as in a lot of countries, Australians consume a lot of their news via social media. Uh, Facebook is by far the top of the charts in this, but, you know, Twitter and other sources, Google News and things like that, are, are mainly the, the things that direct people towards news sites. Uh, the regulator recommended introducing a code of conduct. And in July 2020, the government in Australia unveiled a draft law to enforce the code, which said that tech companies should pay newsrooms a fair amount for the content that they link to. It didn't specify what that amount might be, but it just said a fair amount. Um, Facebook and Google didn't like that for obvious reasons and threatened to withdraw their services from the country. Uh, and this week we've seen Facebook following through on that threat by blocking new services on its site in Australia. So Australia tells Facebook to pay for news. Facebook calls its bluff, gets rid of news. Who is in the right and who's in the wrong here? 
Yeah, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to choose between Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg who who you kind of want to win this fight, isn't it? Um, but the news organisations led you know led by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp Australia have been lobbying for this quite hard, um, and they've argued that basically Facebook and Google derive a huge amount of value from news stories and have basically siphoned off the advertising revenue that used to go to newspapers. Um, according to uh, Australia's competition, what drug, it says that for every $100 spent on online advertising, Google takes $53, Facebook takes $28, and the rest is shared among everyone else. So you can see how that revenue has flown from media outlets to tech giants over the last, I guess, 10 or 15 years. You know, aggregators like Google News, you can sometimes read a story without ever even visiting the site that wrote the story and, and you know put the work into publishing it. Um, Facebook, you know, argues that publishers choose to post news on Facebook and they've never been forced to post their stories on Facebook and that Facebook drives a significant portion of their traffic. The argument in the essence is that, you know, publishers get more benefit from being on Facebook than Facebook gets from, you know, the having news on their platform, right? Um, and we've seen Google and Facebook take different approaches to this uh, proposed legislation in Australia. So unlike Facebook, Google actually struck a deal with the biggest news corporations in Australia, agreeing agreeing to pay them for access to their content, essentially caving into Rupert Murdoch's demands on this. Whereas Facebook uh, has gone the opposite way and said, no, we're not going to allow you to post. We're going to comply with this proposed law and not allow you to share our content, your content on our website anymore. Um, and James, you actually think Facebook did the right thing here? Well, it's sort of the right thing for for the wrong reasons, right? So, Amit, how how would you define Facebook? Is it a social network? Uh, it seems to be a sort of depository for rubbish videos at this point. It, it's 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 morphed over the years from being a place where your friends posted, you know, status updates to somewhere where you go, where it's just kind of a combination of things that aren't really news, aren't really status updates from your friends, and just sort of this mishmash of stuff. But yeah, so I don't know. I wouldn't say yeah, it was a social network. But for, for, for a lot of people, Facebook is the internet. You know, people that invest huge amounts of time in these huge platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, those platforms almost become the internet. But stripping away that fundamentally, and Facebook itself admits this, that it's, it's an ad platform, right? So Mark Zuckerberg has over the years said that Facebook is some sort of digital town square, whatever that might mean, or a, a digital living room, which is an even stranger con, uh, concept. But in, in 2018, in testimony to US Congress, um, he made it very, very clear that Facebook is able to operate without people paying for its services because, Senator, we run ads. It's such a good line. Um, and I'm very, very glad that Congress was able to get Mark Zuckerberg to say that. And the, the problem with what Australia is doing is it's it's trying to regulate Facebook as if it isn't an advertising platform, right? It's trying to regulate it as, as if it is the internet. Facebook isn't the internet. It's a disinformation platform. It's an advertising platform. And it makes billions of dollars, right, by showing people adverts for leggings that they don't want to buy. It's, it isn't a social network. It's an advertising network. And the reason that Zuckerberg wants to connect the world, the mission of Facebook, right, it's not to make the world better. It's to serve more ads for, for leggings, right? Lots and lots of ads for leggings makes Facebook more valuable. And the way to show more of those ads is for people to spend more time on Facebook, right? Which brings us back to news. And the problem with regulating it in this way is that news isn't particularly engaging. News and facts don't do that well on Facebook. What does do well is conspiracy theories, right? So back in 2017, Facebook made one of its biggest and most impactful decisions. It decided to pivot to groups. And this meant that a discussion that was previously happening out in the open, and at the version of Facebook that you think about, right, where you're having a conversation with your friends and family, all of a sudden people were funneled off into, into private rooms, essentially, with like-minded people. And Facebook intended to do this to create a more meaningful interaction on its advertising network to make it more engaging. What it actually did was created the circumstances that led to the storming of the US Capitol, right? The direct consequence of that decision in 2017 was the rise of QAnon on Facebook, was the rise of white supremacism, the rise of anti-vax disinformation, because it's so engaging. And that's great for Facebook wanting to serve ads. So you can distill the problem down pretty neatly like this, right? We've ended up in a moment in history where almost all the information in the world is pumped out by two gigantic advertising platforms that are better at making ads for 
leggings or pajamas that don't have butts in them for some reason that stalk you around the internet but they're not particularly good at preventing an attack on the US Capitol or stopping genocide and that's the problem right there are concerns that Facebook's implemented changes but it's implementing for the wrong for the wrong reasons right yeah and the way I think the way Facebook has implemented these changes really highlights the problem you're talking about Facebook doesn't care about a healthy global conversation as you say James Facebook wants you to be on its site for as long as possible um, this is something that the social dilemma which was that documentary on Netflix a while back did quite well in quite a kind of cringy way it had these like characters kind of pretending to be the algorithm and talking about how they could get this character to to spend more time online and, and, and doing it as sort of a, a active process and obviously the algorithm doesn't actually work like that and but it kind of highlights that Facebook's sole motivation is for you to spend more time on Facebook um, and it's important to remember that the changes that Australia has proposed haven't actually become law yet there's no kind of enforcement process in place Facebook didn't need to do what it did if Facebook cared about news in Australia it wouldn't have done what it did yet why would why would it have that they have, the changes haven't become law what it's done is it's reacted to a proposed change in law by essentially throwing its toys out of the pram in a show of force. And I think that's one of the things that highlights how problematic its almost monopolistic power is. You know, users have been reporting blanket removal of like non-news content as well as news sites. And, you know, switching one of people's vital news sources off in the middle of a global pandemic is just irresponsible and it's arguably dangerous, especially if it means that the fake news conspiracy theories are now left to go kind of viral on Facebook Australia without actual news to kind of balance them out so where does this leave facebook moving forward so i think i was thinking about this like what is facebook without news you know and i think about my news feed and i think this will probably vary depending on your particular friends list but i think certainly in, in my demographic in our demographic we were probably the first generation to really use facebook uh, it came out i think the same year that i started university or at least it, it, it became open to us in the first year that I started university, which was two years after it launched in the States. And I think among our demographic, there's been like a massive drop off in use since then because our, my friends don't post anything on Facebook anymore. So now it's just a mixture of news stories, uh, kind of things that try to get you to join groups and then kind of viral videos about recipe hacks and like, you know, people falling in over stuff. And it's just this kind of like toxic sludge. So I'm kind of intrigued as to what happens to Facebook if it's not a place where your friends post anything and it's not a place where trusted publications post anything then what is it and i'm i'm intrigued to to what you think should happen next or what will happen next james we've got skin in the game right um and 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 that's why i mentioned navel gazing right at the top but i think it's fairly clear over the years that that facebook holds a degree of contempt for news um not only has it banned news from its platform in australia during a global pandemic it's also banned fact-checking So any attempts to get out ahead of vaccine disinformation and misinformation on Facebook in Australia is now impossible. The conspiracy theories can spread as much as they like if Facebook's moderation system isn't able to get on top of them, which consistently it isn't. But the fact checking that's been so crucial to shutting down that kind of rhetoric is banned from Facebook. So Facebook has consistently failed to ban white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, people spreading lies about vaccines. It said that that was too hard a problem to solve, yet it was able to flick a switch and turn off the free flow of information for a nation of 25 million people overnight. Similarly, with uh, seemingly with very little thought, right? It inadvertently banned itself in Australia. It banned British Sky News in Australia. It banned the Australian Meteorological Society. It banned charities. It banned the, the UK Telegraph. This was a really, really shoddy stunt. And it's going to come back to bite Facebook, right? It's weird, isn't it? Because when you see the algorithm in action, you see just how inefficient it is. Like the whole, you see the deletion of loads of of platforms that have nothing to do with Australia at all. They just happen to be news outlets. And it it feels very much like if you got tired of Facebook and you're sort of lurking on there and you've been doing that for years and you just can't get around to deleting it, honestly, just wait for the algorithm to do it itself because it seems like Facebook's just deleting any kind of relevant and useful information that comes from, from news and just leaving all of the well crap that no one else wants to look at anyway so it just feels like it's making itself even more irrelevant just through the inadequacy of its own algorithm which is crazy to me as a business 
we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about kind of alternatives to Google and, and things like that, you know, Bing or DuckDuckGo and kind of safer alternatives to, to data harvesting social networks. And I was thinking like, what's a kind of safe alternative to Facebook or a better alternative to Facebook? And the answer at this point is nothing. Facebook isn't providing a service at this point. <laughs> it's just a place we go to out of habit that, that, and if it breaks that habit, then I don't really think that I would miss it in my life or anything like that. I don't, I don't think that if I didn't go on Facebook ever again, I'd feel like I needed to replace it with anything else at this point. But this discussion isn't just limited to Facebook, right? I mean, obviously, that's the the example. And that's the the news this week. Um, But when we're talking about things like, um, you know, online ads and uh, failing support business models for media, those are problems that, you know, don't aren't just affected by Facebook. If there was another platform that was doing the same thing, it would still be the situation. And I think that's maybe part of the problem here is that there's a lot of concern about journalism and business models for journalism, but I'm not sure that this sort of legislation is the answer. Um, and really, you know, if Facebook doesn't want people to share news on the, on its platform, if it doesn't want to pay to have news shared on its platform, then surely that's kind of up to up to the company, uh, much as we may not like it. And I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy sometimes when we talk about this, when, you know, in the past, people have really slammed the fact that Facebook has become the go-to place for news. They've said this is a really bad thing for society. People shouldn't be going to Facebook for their news. And then after this decision, you see people saying, but this is anti-democratic. Facebook needs to provide news for everyone. So I think there's a lot of complex issues here and there's really no winners. No one comes out of this looking great and it doesn't really solve any of the broader systemic problems that I think people are really concerned about. Uh, they're much more difficult to fix. But I think part of the problem is it's not like it's banned news. What it's banned is like news from actual news organisations. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I if I wrote a, a blog full of inaccuracies and, and hosted it on, you know, WordPress, I could post that to Facebook absolutely fine. But if I did it uh, an accurate version for wired.co.uk, that wouldn't be allowed in Australia. You, you know yeah, what I mean? You, this is but the you issue. Would, but you wouldn't be saying that they have to pay for you to share that content. You know, I guess you can't you can't kind of have it both ways and, and mm. introduce a law saying that, you know, if a company wants com- wants to share certain content, then it needs to pay for it. But then say, oh, no, but you don't have the option to not share it and not pay for it either. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. And I think that the media as a whole has sort of backed itself into a corner with the decisions that it's made over over the years. And I think the problem is that people are now used to getting this stuff for free. And I think that's a fundamental problem. And that, is, that isn't Facebook's problem. That's not Facebook's fault. It, there is going to need to be a readjustment uh, of the way the media business model works. And this is probably a symptom of that rather than the cause of it. Just to haul it away from the media for a second, it, it's easy to give Facebook a kicking, right? But this is a phenomenally successful company, right? So in 2017, just before it announced its big pivot to groups, it had annual revenues of about $40 billion. Last year, it had annual revenues of $85.9 billion. So more than double in, in just a few years. Facebook is really, really, really successful for all of its failings and for all of the negative press that it gets. It still makes ludicrous amounts of money. And just to jump back to the navel gazing, the reason that Facebook is so successfully able to do that is the media and the internet as a whole. We're seeing this on the high street going up against Amazon. Um, It's a failure to innovate. The reason that companies are going out of business and struggling to compete with the likes of Facebook and Google and Amazon is because those companies, they might not be perfect, but they're, they're better at providing the service that people have come to expect. If the news media 15 years ago, when, when Facebook was first sort of flittering around in Mark Zuckerberg's brain, had been able to come up with a platform for successfully sharing information around the web, if they had done that then, they might have had a chance of succeeding now. But sort of the, the New York Times aside, you see in the, the American media, local press going to the wall all over the place and being replaced by the success of things like the Epoch Times, which is a far right publication that's born out of an obscure Chinese religious sect 
that is only successful because it's gamed Facebook's algorithm. The, the, the reason that Facebook is successful is because it's very, very good at what it does. But that doesn't mean that we should treat it as anything other than an advertising platform. And good regulation simply looks like effective taxation. If you tax Facebook and reinvest that money in the news media and encourage the news media to hire smart people to develop good products that people will want to pay for, then you can solve the problem at the other end of the chain rather than imposing essentially, well, you're essentially extorting Facebook to, in one instance, make money from advertising, but in another instance, pay companies to advertise on its platform, which is just bizarre. Anyway, that's probably enough of us talking about the news media. Never are we more engaged than we're talking about our own jobs. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on the future of the news media, or more specifically, if it's a good or bad thing for Facebook to blanket censor all news for a nation of 25 million people. You might have got a fair idea of what we think of it, but what do you think? Because it is a very complicated topic. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about this week or in any other week, if you're listening back through the archive. Time for a couple of your emails now. Natasha, you've got the first one. Yeah, so Angelina writes uh, to us about the mystery DNA origin of her puppy. This is related to a article that we spoke about in the podcast a couple of weeks ago about puppy fraudsters. She says um, that her mum, who is the only one who currently still has to go into work, bought a puppy spontaneously in September. She's always wanted a dog and saw it as her perfect chance. She found the puppy on Gumtree online, didn't do a lot of research, she says, but luckily the, ha- the puppy is playful and very happy. The seller was weird and told uh, them that it was a Yorkshire Terrier, found out after a DNA test that he's mostly Maltese. So, um, yeah, this this is all it, it, kind of a nice outcome, I suppose. Better to find out that your puppy's Maltese than it's like uh, dying or sick or anything like that so that's that's quite good i realized that she did not include a photograph of her puppy which has made me a little bit sad so if you still hear this angelina please do send us in something but i feel like this is a good segue to puppy news of our own which is that vicky has finally got her puppy she's very exciting i have got a puppy yep um a little whippet called cosmo if i sound a bit grumpy today it's because he's (laughs) been keeping me up all night this week (laughs) He's so cute. He appeared in our first team meeting and he was looking straight at the screen as if he were part of the meeting and were like, you know, thinking about what we were saying, which is... He's got thoughts on on the future (laughs) of media, actually. Maybe we should bring him on next time. (laughs) Just have a little bark. It's very sweet. But yeah, thank you, He might might make more sense than me. Uh, Amit, you've got the next email. Yeah, uh, Nima wrote in, uh, we did a piece a few weeks ago about about, uh, QAnon and yoga. Um, Nima wrote in saying, I wanted to thank you for treating QAnon followers with respect and dignity. Instead of lambasting or insulting your intelligence, you asked for instances of how your audience is reaching out and helping to get them back on track. They say that this is exactly the kind of attitude we need more of. Uh, We need more mutual respect in these conversations. And I think this is a good point. I think uh, lambasting people or, you know, shouting at people is never going to bring them back on side. If people have been drawn into conspiracy theories or down rabbit holes, you know, uh, you need to draw them out. You can't, you know, the scales aren't going to suddenly fall from their eyes by you shouting at them or sending them sort of meaningful guardian links. You know, it needs to be kind of a, a conversation and a slow conversion, a, a re-education, if you will. So I think I think that's right. I think mutual respect is really important. And I think there are a lot of people who are maybe, you know, in this sort of conspiracy world and mutual respect and conversation is probably the best way to get them out of it. It might feel counterintuitive, but it's probably the the best way to help people come back from a fairly dark place that they might have disappeared to during the pandemic. Thanks very much for your emails, podcast at wired.co.uk. We do love hearing from you and we'll read out a selection of your emails at the end of the show each and every week. And with that, our time is up. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.